What happens when Christians sin? What happens when Christians sin? God forgives me. Easy question. What about violent sins? I'm not talking those ordinary, everyday, run-of-mill, run-of-the-mill sins. What happens when a Christian sins violently? You know your shame. What then? In our text this morning, David grievously sinned against the Lord. What did the Lord do? And that's a question for this text this morning. What did the Lord do? And the question for us this morning is this. What does God do when we sin greatly? That's the main idea this morning. If you're taking notes, the main idea is a question. What does God do when we sin greatly? I want to answer that question this morning. With our text, 2 Samuel 12, what does God do when we sin greatly? It begins, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent. Chapter 12 begins with Yahweh. Now, chapter 11 began with David. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, in the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. In chapter 11, David is in control. David sent. David saw. David took. David laid. David lied. David killed. David took control and by his control sinned against the Lord. Now what will the Lord do? Chapter 12, the Lord takes control. And the Lord, like David in chapter 11, in chapter 12, sins. Now the verb sent and the Lord sent, that verb controls the whole passage. Matter of fact, the verb sent in chapter 11 controls the whole passage. Everything that happens after he sends, sends him into depravity, into sin. And everything in this verb sent, everything that happens in this chapter, this verb controls the whole chapter. So if you're into highlighting and underlining, you want to highlight, underline the verb sent. It controls the whole narrative. And the Lord sent. And the Lord sent Nathan to David to speak. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him. The Lord spoke through Nathan. David sinned greatly. And the Lord did not leave him alone in his sin. No, the word of the Lord pursued David. The word of the Lord pursued David and persuaded him. Why? Why did the Lord pursue David with Nathan? Why did he send a speaker? Because faith comes by hearing. And he came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. He comes with a parable. He comes with a parable, which might not make sense at first. Why not come with the law? Shouldn't he just come with the law? The Ten Commandments, perhaps. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. But a parable. 
But perhaps there's more to the parable that first meets the eye. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him, and grew up with him, and with his children. Brings this ewe lamb, it becomes part of the family. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. He's at the table of the family, lie in his arms, at the arms of the family. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, David knew what it was like to be a shepherd. So this uh, parable is really, you know, it's quite strategic. David, remember, right? He was a shepherd before king. So he knew what it was like to love and to care for sheep. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, the parable continues, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. And it was custom in that day when you had a traveler, hospitality and all. He was unwilling to use his own resources. But it says, but Nathan says, but he took, very important word, took. We saw that verb later, earlier in chapter 11. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who came to him. He violated God's law. He stole. He took. But more than violation of the law, he also hurt. He took and he hurt. He not only robbed his neighbor, he destroyed him by taking and killing something he so loved. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. David's anger was greatly kindled. We used to call this anger when I was a kid, white hot. That's what we called this kind of anger, white hot. As in, hey, mom is white hot right now. It's best to stay away. David's anger is white hot. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now, I'm not sure this is justice. He deserves to die, a man for taking a sheep and killing it. I'm not sure this was necessarily justice, but that's not the point. The point is that David's anger was justified. The point is the rich man was evil, deserves to die. Verse 6, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now that's biblical. Listen to Exodus 22. Here's Torah. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So David is not only incensed, his anger not only justified, it was biblical. David's response to the parable was biblical and justified. And it was an emotional and it was a righteous response. And it is the kind of response that you want from a good king. You want a good king to be incensed when there's injustice like this. You want a good king to seek retribution. You want a good king to seek reparation. And that's the kind of king God is. God was and God is. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And David was the real rich man in the narrative, in the parable. David not only violated God's word, but he ruined his neighbor. He violated God's word and he ruined his neighbor. And according to Torah, he deserved death. 
just as he confessed. Thus the Lord says, The God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and this, and if this were too little, I would have given you as much more. God had been just gracious upon grace, exceedingly gracious to David. And David returned the favor of God's grace by walking all over God's grace. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? I have been gracious to you. Why have you despised me? You see, when you forsake God's word, when you forsake God's word, you really forsake God. He says in verse 10, because you have despised me. You have despised the word the Lord says. You have despised me. When you reject God's word, you are rejecting the one who spoke it. And every time you sin, our sins are basically a rejection of the word. When we sin, we are rejecting the word of the Lord and we are despising God. Every time you sin, you are rejecting and despising the word of the Lord. You are despising God himself. And every time you care less about God's word and every time you forsake church, yes, every time you forsake the means of grace, you are rejecting the Lord who calls you to worship. You are despising the Lord who graciously gives you the ministry of the word. And you are treating his love and grace as a doormat for your wicked feet to tread all over. And sin not only despises God, sin hurts our neighbor. And the Hebrew emphasizes this in verse 9. In the Hebrew, the narrator, the writer, puts the direct objects before the verb. He places the direct objects before the verb to emphasize the wickedness. So the JSV reads, Uriah the Hittite you struck down with the sword. His wife you took. As your own wife. Him you killed. Him you killed. You see, David not only trampled on God's word, he destroyed people. He despised Yahweh and ruined lives. And every time you despise God, every time you violate his law, you destroy others around you. That's why Jesus says, love the Lord with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. You see, when you love the Lord with all of your might, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to love others around you. When you serve the Lord with all your might, you're going to serve others. But the opposite is true. When you hate God, you are going to ruin the people around you. And you are going to ruin and destroy because sin destroys everything. Sin destroys everything. And how will God respond to such wickedness? How will God respond to such wickedness? What happens when a Christian sins grievously? Verse 10. Yahweh says, Therefore, 
The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. God gave David here. God's response to David was with one of the oldest laws in the Bible. The law of lex talionis. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But isn't God also merciful? God is merciful. But he is likewise just. And his justice demands retribution. You see, he is good, and a good God doesn't stand for injustice. A good God acts against sin. He seeks retribution, reparation, because God is holy, holy, holy. And what does this mean for us? Well, it means, dear Christian, hell is real. Hell is real. And it is appointed for man to die, and after this, the judgment. And what does God do with sin? What does God do with sin? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Reject God's word, hurt other people, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in this life and in the life to come. There will be justice. God is good. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. A little too late, David. Just a little too late. The law says the wages of sin is death. You are an adulterer. You are a murderer. Surely you will die. Verse 13. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wait, what? (laughs) The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not. What's going on here? What about justice? What about the ruined lives? What about the parable? What about the law of God? What is this? This is godly sorrow. David rebelled against the Lord. And if he would have obeyed the word of the Lord, if he would obey the Lord, Uriah would not have died. Bathsheba would still be married. But those sins followed his worst sin. His worst sin was this. He sinned against the Lord. And David made no excuses. This is very important. He made no excuses. We call this godly sorrow. Now opposed to godly sorrow, there is what we also call, or the Bible calls, worldly sorrow. I'm going to do one of those famous preacher things and say, if you don't get anything else this morning, hear what I'm about to say. Worldly sorrow is false sorrow. Worldly sorrow is false sorrow in that it makes all the excuses in the world. 
Worldly sorrow is like this. Well, I know I've done this evil thing. I know I've done an evil thing to my wife. I know I've done an evil thing to my, my children. But you don't understand. You don't understand the pressure I'm under at work. You don't know the stress. You don't know and understand the family pressures to provide that my family puts onto me. And sometimes my wife, my wife could be a real you-know-what. And she hurts me. She doesn't love me. So I hurt her. So I hurt my children. My dad did that to me. My mom used to tie my shoes a little too tight. And what's this woman doing outside bathing out on the roof anyway? Right, fellas? Probably wanted me to look. On and on. But before the Lord, there's no excuse. That's godly sorrow. No excuse. There is only, you are the man. There is only the law and what you will do with it. There's only the law and what will you do with it. What will God do to you in your sin? It depends on your sorrow. Does that mean David should really feel his sorrow? Perhaps we don't like the simplicity of David's confession. It's against you and you only have I sinned. You know, probably we want to think, well, shouldn't he really, like, and then the Lord immediately forgives him. Shouldn't he, like, wallow in his, like, shouldn't he prepare for the forgiveness of the Lord? Shouldn't he really wallow in his misery? Shouldn't there be tears and wallowing and rolling around the ground and beating his chest? That's worldly sorrow thinking. It's the idea that our intensity and piety cooperate with the cross. We think we have to beat ourselves just a little so that the beatings that Christ took will work. But godly sorrow knows that Jesus' suffering and death, death don't need our suffering. You see, the goodness of the gospel is this. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you will be saved. Simple. Only few words are needed. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you may beat your chest, but you know that the only beating that saves is the beating that Christ took. By his wounds, we are healed. Only the cross satisfies justice and not my sorrow. Godly sorrow, however, is necessary because it is a work of the cross. Verse 13. And Nathan said, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. What happens when we sin grossly against the Lord? What happens when the Christian sins violently against the Lord? God pursues you with his law and saves you by his gospel. You see, David's sins were forgiven without cost. And the law tells us that he deserved death. The penalty was death. The penalty in the Torah for adultery is death. The penalty in the Torah for murder, death. But his sins were forgiven without cost. Immediately. Now, if you remember Saul, the 
previous king. When Saul sinned, God stripped the kingdom from Saul and condemned him to death, and he died. But David sins worse. Forgiveness in life. What's the difference? He's a man after God's own choosing. You see, God will not deny his elect, but give them eternal life. Eternal life, not short life. Not short life if they sin, but eternal life because of his grace. Not of works, lest no one should boast. He was a man after God's own heart. Not because he was sinless, but because he was submissive to God's accusing word. He heard the law, repented, turned. He knew his sins and misery. He knew how he was delivered from his sins and misery. And the Lord cleanses our sins. But discipline remains. You see, God is always holy, holy, holy. Hebrew 12, 6, Hebrew says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Now, when you really listen to that verse, you hear, He chastens every son whom he receives. Are you a son? Are you a daughter? You're going to be chastened. Because you're a sinner. He chastens his sons. Verse 14, nevertheless, here's the chastening. Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who will be born to you shall die. You see, David is forgiven. No more condemnation. Your sins are taken away. But there's consequences in this text. Consequences. What happens when a Christian sins against the Lord? God forgives me. But I still have to face my sin. Augustine said sin is a punishment for sin. Sin is a punishment for sin. And as immediately as God forgave, as immediately as he forgave David, so immediately he chastened him. Verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child because, or afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. What happens when we sin grossly against the Lord? What happens? Life and death. Christians are corrected. Unbelievers are punished. And with the latter, the unbeliever is judged. But with the former, the Christian is chastened. You see, when unbelievers sin, when an unbeliever sins, God takes vengeance against his enemy. But when a Christian sins... God is offended. He says, you've utterly scorned the Lord. When the Christian sins, the Lord is offended, but not in wrath. He will not punish our misdeeds, says the psalmist. He will not punish our misdeeds. He corrects and he admonishes. And his correction and his admonishing can be very painful. Matter of fact, it probably will be painful. But there's also purpose in the pain. There's purpose to the suffering. That's the beauty of the Christian life. In the Christian life, suffering now has meaning. 
the beauty of being a Christian, or one of the beauties, there's many, I guess there's many, maybe this is, mean, this is benefit 433. <laughs> benefit 433, when the Christian suffers, there's purpose in it. There's meaning. Everyone's going to suffer. Your unbelievers, we all suffer. But when we suffer, there's meaning and there's purpose and it's good. You can believe and you should know that your suffering is for your good. And so you can embrace it. Yes, embrace the pain, embrace the suffering because it is a means to reform. There's meaning to suffering. And it means to glorify God and to better our life. Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. That therefore is very important. Therefore David sought. That therefore reminds us of David's faith. God chastened him. Therefore David prayed. God said the child would die. So David prayed for his life. Is David not trusting the word of the Lord? I mean, the Lord says, hey, he's going to die, and then David goes and prays. No. David trusts the word of the Lord, and he knows that in that word, in the word of the Lord, there is law. The child will surely die. But David also knows there's gospel. And so he prays. He knows that he has sinned. He knows he's heard the law. But he knows that his life is grace. And he knows that everything he had in life is because of God's grace. So perhaps God will be gracious now. So he fasted and he prayed. You see, that was his worldview. If there is such a thing, the Christian worldview is gospel. If there is such a thing, the Christian worldview is grace. David lived it. He believed it. This isn't arrogance. He wasn't arrogantly praying that the Lord would change his mind. He expected the Lord to change his mind. Not arrogance. The Christian worldview. He believed in grace. But the child died. And his servants were too afraid to tell David. They're afraid he might take his own life and... And they start talking amongst themselves. And David was wise. He understood. And he asked, verse 20, is the child dead? They said he's dead. Verse 20, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went into his own house. And when they asked, uh, and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. I mean, just like that, he changed. (laughs) He was groveling before the Lord in prayer, fasting, child dead. He gets up. Life is normal. And I'm just as curious as the servants, how he could change so quickly, verse 21. Then a servant said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David's response is wonderful. David's response was his Christian worldview. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me? Who knows? Just maybe the Lord will be gracious. That was his worldview. I know I've sinned greatly before the Lord, and he has chastened, but who knows? God had been gracious to David his whole life, and he lived by that grace. 
And we know that even in our sufferings, that we suffer for good. And our sufferings are God's gracious gift to us. So in death, we can pray thy will be done and rest in the arms of a loving Father. And when the Lord did not answer his prayer, he humbly accepted the word of the Lord. He humbly accepted it. Verse 23. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then he confesses the resurrection. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And that's godly sorrow. He found hope in a God who raised the dead. He would see the child again. He knew that the Lord always does what is right. And so he confessed his sins. He prayed. He trusted the Lord's word. And moved on. And the Lord gave him peace. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. The name Solomon comes from the word shalom. It's a derivative of shalom. means peace, prosperity. God chastened, but God grants him peace. And then in a wonderful way, God sends this wonderful minister, this minister who preached the law, condemned him. Now the minister comes along and assures him. And he sent a message by Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah. David named him Solomon, peace, prosperity. God named him Jedidiah because of the Lord. Peace and prosperity because of the Lord. This was the Lord's way of assuring and blessing David with the gospel. The baby did not die. God is good. And the story ends. The story ends with David gaining victory. I'm not going to read the text, but he goes after the Ammonites. He gains victory. He defeats them. He becomes even more prosperous over his enemies. Verse 31, it says, Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. David and all of you will return to Jerusalem with peace and prosperity. The text began with judgment. It ends in peace. Why? Because that is what God does for the Christian. That's the result when we grievously sin against the Lord. Judgment, then peace. What happens when we sin grossly against the Lord? The cross happens. God pursues us by his word to wash away all our sins by the precious blood of Christ. You see, chapter 12 is here to remind us that God does not allow us to remain in our sins. When we sin violently against the Lord, we abandon the Lord. He will not abandon us. He will pursue And he will track you down in your sins and misery. And he will track you down with the word. And that word is law and gospel. Because he has condemned us in our because he has condemned our sin in Christ, we are justified, righteous. His gospel speaks peace. Righteous as if we've never sinned nor been a sinner. Righteous as, we, as if we have been perfectly obedient as Christ is obedient for us. He pursues us with his covenant grace and mercy, justifies, redeems, and then sanctifies that we might be a people reformed to the word to live for the Lord, to live for our neighbor. And it turns out that this word works. The word that pursues God's people 
pursues us, redeems us. The word that pursues us sanctifies, reforms. And it turns out church is a lot more than many let on. And you desperately need the church. For chances are, this past week, you sinned grievously against the Lord. And chapter 12 is here to remind you that God has pursued you this morning. He has pursued you through the means of grace. He has sent his word to you. And chapter 12 has made all the difference. Chapter 12 has made all the difference between chapter 11. You see, without the word, chapter 11 would have only ended in hopelessness and death. But now with chapter 12 and the word of God, it ends with life and with peace. So what happens when we sin grossly against the Lord? The ministry of the word happens. And then what? Faith comes by hearing. And then what? Well, for that, I'd like you just to experience. And we'll experience it in a moment. The Lord's table. Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.